welcome to the inaugural episode of the podcast, Horribly Horrific Horror of Horribleness, or as I'll likely refer to it, The Good 4-H. And I have checked with my two guys in the legal department, Google and Wikipedia, and they both say I am allowed to make that joke. So for those of you who don't know me personally, which likely will be almost none of you to start with, let me give you a bit of background. I am a huge horror fan. The only reason I got into reading was due to being given a Goosebumps book when I was a kid by a teacher. Up until that point, I really didn't care for reading at all. After that, though, I couldn't put books down. It's also why I started writing and why I continue to both read and write. And, of course, eventually I discovered way more horror than Goosebumps. No offense to R.L. Stein, but after a certain age, you need something with a bit more of a kick to it. Eventually I found what many of us do, Poe, King, and so on. But my go-to horror author that I never can get enough of is H.P. Lovecraft. I adore that man's writing. As for horror films and TV, I mean, hey, we all started with Scooby-Doo, right? After that, though, I think I jumped in headfirst. Though I don't honestly remember what my first horror film was, uh, I've been watching them for the better part of two decades. And I do remember the first movie that scared me to the point of being unable to move, The Shining. I watched it and I was maybe 11, 12 at the oldest. It was on TV and I sat down to enjoy it. The sun was still out and I was home alone, but hey, it's light out. Nothing bad can happen when it's light out, right? Except it started just before sunset, so by the time the movie had really ramped up and I'm trapped on the couch afraid to get up and even pee during a commercial break because no lights are on in the house and it's dark outside. I think at one point I managed to call my parents to ask when they were going to be home. And while you'd think maybe that would be enough to steer me clear of horror, you'd be wrong. Actually, you'd be stupid, seeing as how you're listening to me doing a podcast about horror movies. Like, seriously, why would you think that? What's wrong with you? Anyway, I never really stopped watching them after that. It wasn't until I was in my mid-twenties that I really found and developed a taste for bad horror. Because good horror is just so damn wonderful. It's perfection. But bad horror, there's a zen aspect of something so terrible that you can enjoy it. Obviously, there's horror so bad that it just sucks, and we'll be hitting on quite a few of those, I'm sure. But horror that's so bad it's entertaining is just one of the best things modern life has to offer, outside of being able to order pizza without having to interact with another human being. I'm hoping to review and critique and make fun of plenty of so bad they're good and so bad they're bad movies for you all. I also assume occasionally I'll find a diamond in the rough, so to speak. One of the first selections I'll have for you in this first episode is one I actually found to be particularly good. The others, well, you'll see. So again, welcome to the Horror 4-H podcast. I'm Brent, your guide into the malodorous macabre movies. The horribly horrific horror of horribleness, if you will. Alliteration is fun, kids. Let's get this started. Okay, so the uh, first one I'm going to be reviewing here is uh, entitled The Void. It's a fairly recent horror movie, uh, 2016, and Canadian, so good job, Canada. Uh, The movie starts off with a fairly straightforward seeming murder, shotgun blast to a girl running away from two apparent psychopaths, who then light her still-breathing body on fire, because why the fuck not, right? Uh, Though it does bear mentioning they do this by pouring gasoline on her, and then the older of the two uh, crazy guys lights a cigarette, and after just taking a few drags, uses it to start the fire. And I mean, I don't smoke, but this seems like a waste of a perfectly good coffin nail, especially since during or after a murder you might want some nicotine. But hey, I don't know. There's another victim that has escaped ahead of the girl, and after that murder you cut to a scary figure in a white sheet with the ever-present black triangle that the movie uses to represent the titular void, and roll opening credits. 
it might sound kind of like a demeaning and blasé intro, but it's actually not a bad, uh, not a bad one at all. And the shots of the surrounding rural area interspersed with a slow and not actually even remotely ominous theme set a pretty good tone overall. Not a bad way to start the movie at all. So cut to one of the film's protagonists, Officer Daniel Carter, waking from a nap to spot the escaped victims tumbling out of the nearby woods. He uncharacteristically, uh, in films like this, acts like an actual small-town cop. Gets out of the car, starts to joke with the guy about what a rough party night it must be, before noticing the dude is actually fairly fucked up. Taking him to a nearby hospital, who Dispatch informs us in some expedition disguised as dialogue, is still listed up and running despite a recent fire. Totally not important later on, at all. Oh hey, look at that gun over there on the fireplace. Anyway... Uh, Carter tells the dispatch to let them know he's bringing the kid in, like him specifically, which sets the tone for the upcoming major tension and plot drive in the whole story. I know, you'd think maybe the murder and other eventual horrors uh, are actually the drive uh, and the reason for the tension in the movie, and they are, but uh, not specifically. The beginning one starts there. At the hospital, we're introduced to pretty much the rest of the cast. A competent nurse, Allison, who's Carter's wife, though things aren't so great in the marriage right at the moment. Dr. Powell. Kim the intern, who seems fascinated with the grossest and most morbid of the nursing field, and who is bothering a patient. Cliff, don't get too attached, kids. Another nurse, Beverly. A pregnant teenager, Maggie, who is ready to pop. And her grandfather, Ben. It's worth noting in the scene where we meet Cliff and Kim that on TV is Night of the Living Dead, the original. Uh, obvious nod to those who pioneered some of the horror genre. It's small and an appreciated touch for the person paying attention, which I'm doing because seems kind of pointless to review and critique a film if you're not going to pay attention. Also worth noting, uh, through the decent folksy dialogue, is it's obvious this town is small and everyone knows everyone else's business. We find out James, the first intended victim, is obviously a drug addict and also not super happy to be in the hospital. But then we find out the tension that I mentioned earlier uh, really starts as Carter and Allison have a brief moment where we clearly see that they still have feelings for each other, but definitely have a strained, strained relationship. Dr. Powell shows up and helps Carter understand why the tension is there, as if he didn't know. Carter and Allison have lost a child. Powell commiserates having lost his daughter a long time ago. That gun above the uh, fireplace definitely isn't important at all. It's just sitting there. Don't worry about it. Not going to be used. We then cut to Beverly slowly sliding a pair of scissors into Cliff's already dead body via his eye. Carter discovers this and is understandably concerned. Bev reveals she's sliced off most of her face and is babbling nonsense about her face not being hers, asking for help while approaching somewhat menacingly towards Carter with the scissors. Carter shoots her, dead, and this kicks off the holy shit what the fuck horror that the movie does quite well. Alright, that's enough of the play-by-play. -play. This isn't a podcast about every scene in the movie. Let's jump to some of the meat and potatoes of it all, because frankly, potatoes are delicious. I wanted to get to that point specifically because Aaron Poole, uh, the actor who plays Officer Carter, shows some seriously solid acting chops. Uh, he displays the signs you'd expect to see of a decent human being forced to kill someone they know. He's shaky, he's obviously got his adrenaline going but has nowhere to send it, he's sick to his stomach, and while remaining composed in front of everyone, as soon as he's alone, the veneer slides off and he acts freaked the fuck out. Honestly, Poole's acting is a highlight of this film for me. Uh, while it's not 100% believable, he resembles what I think a lot of us think we'd want to be like in a situation like that. Some coolness, some freaking the fuck out, and always good with a quick quip or a plan. You know, just the general decent protagonist overall. Uh, he plays it very well. 
Most of the players uh, in the movie seem to be fairly decent actors who handle the lines given to them with a sureness in their characters that we don't always get to see. Some of the lines are a bit dry, and some of the characters seem fairly one-dimensional, but hey, honestly, that's not a bad thing. Since the entirety of the film takes place over one night in a highly stressful situation involving supernatural forces, a few people not really having to grow provides some baselines we can rely on. I can't really stress Poole's performance enough, though. He manages some very subtle, solid facial expressions, and some not-so-subtle, that sell his lines or lack thereof. Whether that's all on him or the director pulled it out of him, that's irrelevant. The final product is great. And of course, what good is an actor's performance if the setting is terrible? The answer is, not great. The good news is, The Void doesn't have a bad setting. The movie relies evenly on dialogue, plot, and effects, and they don't shy away from any of these things. And the effects are fantastic. There is plenty of gore, so if you're in it for that, you're in for some treats. From hacking a huge beast straight out of Lovecraft with axes to horrific creatures straight out of a nightmare pinhead would be proud to have, they never seem to have a problem showing things up close or from a distance. They don't rely on low lighting to cover bad effects. The film uses lighting as necessary, having little of it when it fits, and enough when they need it. Strobing effects are used off and on, but not in an effort to hide anything, in as much as to highlight the stress. It's actually kind of refreshing. The monster effects and gore are all practical. I don't think I caught hardly any CGI except in a few points where it was impossible to build something needed. Uh, if the effects team didn't watch Carpenter's The Thing on repeat before doing this film, I will eat my left nut. But not the right one, because that one's my favorite. By the way, that's a compliment whenever I'm saying that they basically, you know, ripped off The Thing. Uh, I don't mean necessarily that they stole from it, uh, as much as they studied it, learned, and made it some of their own. Horror is best when it's visceral and you can feel the bullets and axes landing, when you can feel the heat of the flames, when you can hear the sickening noises of metal hitting meat, and this film gives you all of that. Uh, it's definitely an A for effort and execution as far as the effects go. I'm impressed with it, to say the least. I'm not exactly a film student. I'm not a film student at all, actually. I can't speak to camera angles and techniques as well as I'd like, but I know what I do like and what works for me, and this film works for me overall. They used distant stationary shots to establish, and otherwise, they do close-up work. Uh, often the camera is up close and a little janky in the handheld way, but it's obviously not handheld, sort of found footage, grainy, so it's clear everything's very visible. They tend to use the actor's viewpoints briefly but effectively. Usually they go for a right before, like right in front of, or right behind the uh, actors. It's overall pretty good as far as the camera work's concerned. Uh, the plot moves forward at irregular intervals, and while that might seem annoying on the surface, it actually works for a solid horror movie. It keeps you on your toes. In a scene, you know, you, you kind of wonder, is this scene going to be a big reveal of some of the dark secrets hidden by one of the characters that helps explain why suddenly there are hellish nightmare creatures eating people, or is it going to be one of the characters just going to go get something real quick? Or is it going to be one than the other? You're not really sure, and that makes you have to pay attention. It's not all praise, though. Uh, some of it is pretty damn ham-handed and just hits you over the head with motives and progression. It's a little disappointing in a movie that I so thoroughly enjoy, but nothing is perfect, and it definitely it doesn't ruin anything. It's just noticeable, and I feel as if I'd be not doing my due diligence to point out some flaws that it had as well. The pacing, though, eventually ramps up to a pretty constant white-knuckle pace pretty much right up until the end. Which, again, good for a horror movie. I'm not going to give any spoilers about the ending, uh, but I can see it being a rather disappointing and unsatisfying end to some viewers. 
you gain explanation and insight into the why and how of what all is happening, but the ending itself kind of leaves you with more questions than answers. But if you're a big fan of Stephen King or H.P. Lovecraft, I'm kind of a fan of both of them, so I'm biased, I think you'll appreciate it. Honestly, the whole film feels like a modern attempt at a 1980s campy horror movie, but injected with a shitload of Lovecraft and a few pinches of Cronenberg, and they pulled it off beautifully. Overall, I highly recommend this movie if you're into horror of the unknown, of the mind, body horror, and if you like damn good practical effects. Uh, right now, as of me recording this, it's on Netflix, but I bet you can find it on wherever the hell you watch your movies. I'm not going to tell you where to watch or who to watch. Well... I'm going to tell you who to watch in the... I'm not going to tell you where to watch. We'll, we'll leave it at that. But I would say definitely give it a shot. Okay, so unlike the previous review, I have no issues spoiling a movie that came out when I was two years old. You've had over 30 years to see this wonderful piece of crap, though I'm sure most of you haven't. However, don't let any of the spoilers ruin the ride for you. I implore you, watch this movie when you get a chance. Uh, the name of it is Witchboard. It came out in 1986. So, Witchboard. Why do they call it Witchboard, you ask? Good question, since they never actually refer to the Ouija board as a Witchboard even once in the entire film. But what they do do, ha, ah, I said do-do, is refer to it constantly as a Ouija board. In fact, in the opening scene of the film, one of the primary characters gets very snooty about it. It's okay, though, he stays snooty throughout the entirety of the film about everything, not just that, but especially that. The opening scene is where we're introduced to the bulk of the characters in the movie. It's a party. Well, it's a party in the absolute loosest definition of the word. I'm pretty sure the casting director walked through downtown L.A. and stopped literally every single person they saw and said, You want to be in a movie? We'll pay you with booze! And then somehow still ended up with a very bland background cast. Then again, I suppose that's kind of the point of the background cast, so I don't know. Anywho... We're introduced right away to the main characters, Jim and Linda, a couple who have as much chemistry as I do. Hint, I haven't been in classes for years and therefore have no chemistry. I suspect the entire purpose of their relationship at the beginning of the film is to let one of the other characters, Brandon, Brendan, honestly, I'm not sure which. I think uh, it said Brandon in the credits, but I swear to everything holy, they start off calling him Brendan, and then halfway through the movie start calling him Brandon, and by the time they finished filming, the director was like, fuck it, not like anyone's gonna watch this movie and notice anyways. Do what you want. But anyways, it's obvious that Brandon is the dick of the movie. He's antagonistic and super snotty. Being in law school, I suppose that somehow makes sense, because as we all know, if you're a lawyer, you're an asshole. Sorry guys, I don't make the rules. Brandon and Jim have a history, and that history is Linda. Is it a love triangle? Did Jim steal her away with his rugged good looks, his snappy wardrobe, his wonderful personality? Nope. Who knows why she's with him, but considering her two options were asshole borderline alcoholic and asshole snobby law student, she made the wrong choice. The correct option was wait for a better option. But hey, this is a bad horror movie, so we gotta shoehorn stuff. Speaking of shoehorning, because this is a party in the 80s and people are drinking, Brandon has to bust out his Ouija board and make up a bunch of arbitrary rules, one of which I've already mentioned. It's a Ouija board. Ouija. Not Ouija. Ouija. Anyways, you should only have two people doing it. It's gotta be on your knees, and I'm sure there were other rules that didn't stick, even though I took notes. Some of the rules are actually rules, but I know one of the big rules I've heard with Ouija boards, they broke right off the bat, which is don't break contact without closing the portal. Right away, Brandon tries to talk with a kid he talks to all the time, because talking to a 10-year-old boy on a regular basis 
even though when you're an adult in law school isn't creepy, as long as the kid is already dead. Someone, foreshadowing, tries to say they're the kid, David, but they aren't. It's cool, though, because then David actually shows up. And then Jim is such an asshole that he can bully a dead kid into leaving. But not before the dead kid gets so mad at him that he makes Brandon's tires pop. Yes, you heard that right. Anyways, the board gets left at the apartment house. Actually, it's not even clear where they live. I think sometimes they had permission to shoot in one room of the house, and other days they didn't, so they changed what it was scene by scene. Like, legit, in one scene later on, Jim has to buzz someone up. But in that scene and multiple others, you never see anyone else in the entire house unless they needed to further the plot. The landlady lives there, and in one scene, Linda freaks out and is attacked by a ghost and screams one time, which summons an entire crowd of people. And in another scene, there's basically a full-on shouting match, and no one calls the cops or knocks. So the housing situation is a bit murky, to say the least. I got off track, though. I didn't. This is actually scripted. I'm reading from a script, so technically, I'm on track. This is directed madness, kids. Linda keeps using the board because why not? She talks to David. In case you couldn't tell, I did air quotes there. It's not really David, but you don't find that out until way later. Linda thinks she's pregnant and totally wants David to be her baby because, again, it's not creepy and weird to say that shit to a 10-year-old if they're already dead. But David is all, no thanks, I'd rather stay dead than be your kid because Jim is kind of an asshole. Then to punctuate that, we see Jim at his job. He's a construction worker. Probably the least muscular construction worker I've ever seen until we see his friend standing next to him. Jim can't find his hatchet hammer combo tool. Again, kids, that gun over the fireplace, totally not going to be used later. Jim and his buddy, who is so unimportant that I didn't even write his name down, take a lunch break under a giant slab of sheetrock. I honestly don't think they were even wearing safety helmets because, again, the 80s! Jim hops up from where they're sitting, and boom, sheetrock falls and crushes Buddy. It's such a massively heavy piece of sheetrock that it kills the guy almost instantly. And then Jim pulls it off of him like it weighs all of one pound because adrenaline, I guess? I don't know. But congratulations, Jim's Buddy. You're the first death of the movie. Obviously, more scary things happen. David seems to be helpful, if not super creepy, and helps Linda find a ring she lost. It was in the drain. Is that not one of the single most common places you should look for a lost ring? Like, come on, Linda, you're in law school with Brandon, and you can't think to look in a drain. There's several jump scares, and Jim eventually comes home to give her the bad news that so-and-so died. Jump to funeral, where after it, we're introduced to, personally, my favorite character in the movie, Lieutenant Dewhurst, who questions Jim about the guy's death. How does he do this, you may ask? But you didn't, because you assume he does it like any normal cop would. Well, he doesn't. Instead, he does it like a detective who has watched Columbo every day of his life while jacking off saying, I'm so gonna do this someday. And he asks the guy whose friend just died if he likes magic. Seriously, he says, do you like magic? It's all about distraction and looking the other way and stuff like that. After a few minutes of terrible dialogue, we get Jim's best reaction in the film. Lieutenant... We're not really talking about magic, are we? Ding, ding, ding! Give Jim a prize! Detective Dewhurst knows Jim lost his hatchet. Dun, dun, dun! No, seriously. Dun, dun, dun. The hatchet is like the absolutely most hilarious thing in the movie. It was used to cut the ropes that held up the sheetrock. It'll make another fantastic appearance in a bit. Don't worry. Okay, so more scary stuff happens, including a moment that is so full of subtlety that I honestly didn't know it was supposed to be scary. Linda is in the kitchen, and a knife flies off the shelf, sticking itself in the ground, and an open bottle of ketchup nearby falls over and drips all over the knife, making it look bloody. 
I have seen more subtleties in porn. Finally, even Jim is like, okay, I guess maybe shit is a little weird. And so Brandon, who knows that Linda has been using the Ouija alone, thinks she's suffering from something called progressive entrapment, which frankly sounds like something weird cops do to you. He says they need to bring in a medium to get David out of there, so like any sane, rational person, Jim totally agrees to this. Enter Zarabeth. Other than the actress playing Linda, uh, who's Tawny Kittian, I honestly can't pronounce her name correctly. I'm sorry, Tawny. If you're listening to this, I'm sorry that you're listening to this, honestly. You may recognize her from White Snake videos, or even better, as Dianera from Hercules. Yes. This is the only person in the movie that I've seen in something else. The, the actress that plays Zarabeth. Though, fuck me if I honestly know where I've seen her. Uh, she's just been in other stuff. But she is the most stereotypically happy 80s punk person I've ever seen. And it is glorious. I'm like 99.9% .9 sure her payment for this movie was just getting to keep her wardrobe. And honestly, that would have been worth it. She totally gets David to leave, but thinks it was quote-unquote too easy before heading home to suddenly realize it wasn't really David. It was some evil dude named Malfador who followed her home and chases her through her house. By the way, she must make some serious scratch being a medium, because even for 80s money, the house is fucking sweet. Finally, she makes it to her upstairs bedroom, because horror movie rules, you run upstairs where there's no escape. She's by a window when, remember that magic hatchet I told you about? That's right, it flies out of nowhere and hits her in the neck before the ghost pushes her out of a window, making her land on a sundial because fuck this medium in particular. So remember when I said earlier that Linda was attacked by a ghost? That happens now. She ends up needing to go to the hospital because in the 80s, ghost attacks were covered by insurance. Jim and Brandon have a broment and decide that they gotta go figure out what's up by visiting the nearby town of Big Bear. Yes, really. Because it's where David lived. They search through the microfiche at the library and find he died in a boating accident involving an explosion. What the fuck? Anyway, when they try to find his parents, they fail. Not sure what they were going to ask, though. Hey, you remember when your kid died? Yeah, did he have a thing against people named Linda or something? Because he's haunting the fuck out of my girlfriend. So they break into a cemetery to, I don't know, further the plot somehow, and find not just David's grave, but the graves of his parents who died about a week ago, which totally implies, by the way, that the ghost dude is fucking using enough forethought to murder people that they might try to talk to in an attempt to continue to pretend to be this dead kid. The ghost murderer has more sense than anyone else in the entire movie. By the way, the cemetery were treated to shitloads of fog, which I've neglected to mention, but they use it all the time in this movie. Like, at some point, I'm pretty sure someone went, Look! We paid for the fog machine, so we're gonna use it! After another broment, where Jim and Brandon totally talk about their feelings and Linda and how they used to be like brothers and they're totally cool now, they spend a night in a hotel and head out to where David died to use the Ouija board there. Yeah. They talk to David and find out he isn't the one terrorizing Linda after all. It's this evil dude, Malfader, who's right behind you! No, seriously, Jim gets knocked unconscious by flying barrels for like 10 minutes, which is super bad for you. And Brandon gets knocked into the water by this heavy barrel that then floats. So, I don't know. He gets out of the water to check on Jim when, that's right, magic hatchet to the face. I, I'm not kidding either. Magic hatchet to the face. Jim comes to, oh no, Brandon is dead. He goes and finds a psychic in Big Bear. Like, were they everywhere in the 80s? I was a kid, so I don't know, but... It just seems like they're everywhere. 
And she knows all about male Fedor, because apparently everyone in the world but Jim Linda and Brandon totally know about this guy. He murdered a bunch of people and he lived in, wait for it, Jim and Linda's house apartment. Seriously, they even use a picture in the book that somehow has everything about male Fader in it. There's a picture of the house sketched, and they use that picture to then fade into a shot of the house where Linda has gone back to, because in the 80s they let you just leave the hospital after a ghost attack. No follow-up needed there. Linda's in the shower, and this is where we are force-fed the gratuitous nudity scene that is 100% necessary for so many old horror movies. She's attacked in the shower by evil dude and then totally possessed, so when Jim shows up, Linda, sorry, Malfader tries to kill him. So I gotta stop here. The movie actually does something totally right for once. Linda attacks Jim, and while she does, he has a knife, but he doesn't stab her. Instead, while she's choking him, he says, I love you, Linda, which he hasn't said this whole movie. Instead, he's done the Han Solo, I know, anytime she said that she loves him. And for a moment, she gets all normal. She's like, Jim. And then it's just her laughing her ass off, and Malfader says something like, you didn't think it'd be that easy, did you? Like, actually, yeah, I kind of did, because, you know, this shit happens in bad horror movies. So it was really nice to see them be a little meta. Okay, so Jim defends himself. Obviously, Dewhurst shows up right then. Why wouldn't he? And he tries to help Linda, only to end up getting knocked out by, you know, Malfador, and his gun conveniently winds up on the floor. Jim grabs it and threatens Mal. That's when Mal's all, You can't kill her! Ha 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 ha! And then Mal falls into the trap so many movie villains do. He monologues. If only the Incredibles had come out sooner. Mal lets Jim know that Jim is the portal, not Linda, so he has to kill himself, but he doesn't really love Linda that much, does he? Jim totally gets ready to shoot himself with the gun, puts it up to his head, and instead shoots the Ouija board, which is flying around the room all of a sudden in horrible CGI effects. Seriously. And somehow, this totally works, but not before Jim gets pushed out the window with equally bad CGI effects. Cut to a church with people crying. Because Jim and Linda are getting married! Yay! Guess those murders that took place using Jim's hatchet and Brandon's corpse with Jim's fingerprints all over him and Jim stealing Brandon's car after he, you know, maybe murdered him, totally didn't matter to anybody at any point. And Jim is still wearing a neck brace, because why wait till you can fuck on your honeymoon to get married? And that's the end, right? Wrong. Landlady cleaning the messy apartment house, and someone finds the board and tosses it, still riddled with bullet holes, mind you, guess that didn't need to be bagged as evidence at all, into a box saying, hey, it might still be good. I don't know. It still couldn't work, though, right? Could it? Camera zooms in on the yes, and the planchette, boom, moves to it. <gasps> Sequel, anyone? <clears throat> okay, so... Since this is the third and final review of the initial episode, I think I've figured out my general style. Why didn't you have that figured out before you started recording, you may ask? Well, you're smarter than me. But The Void, I actually enjoyed, so I critiqued it and reviewed it. Which board, while I enjoyed, wasn't what I would call quote-unquote good, so I didn't really review it as much as beat it up, which was fun for me, and I hope it was fun for you too, because if it wasn't, you may want to skip this last bit. Because Wake the Witch was also so bad, but in a really fun way. Okay, so, Witchboard, I did not feel the slightest bit bad about ripping into. This movie, I kind of feel like I need to put a little disclaimer here at the beginning. I feel like ripping it apart is kind of like beating up a small kid in a wheelchair. Like, I feel as if someone honestly tried with this movie and it just did not go the way they'd hoped. But 
that, hey, there's no such thing as bad press, right? So maybe this gets them a few extra views, get them a little bit of attention. I mean, who knows? So the movie is Wake the Witch. It uh, came out in 2010, and it starts out with a little photo shoot, air quotes. It's a fairly tame slash lame one, but no big deal. After the shoot, uh, we are introduced in it, by the way, to three main characters, only one of whom's really main, the other two are pretty ancillary. Yeah. So, uh, after the shoot, the characters trounce through the woods, and one trips over a random chain, which brings up the legend of the witch in the woods, which is probably the most believable thing in this entire movie. The legend says this witch killed a bunch of kids a long time ago, pretty standard so far, so they hung her from a tree and then chained up the tree or her or something like that and ran the chains around the forest to keep her in it. Alright. You find the chain, you follow it, you walk around the tree where they hung her three times, she wakes up and you ask her about your future, and then if you don't do it fast enough, she kills you. It's actually a really solid, shitty, small-town legend. Uh, like, seriously. I'm, I'm praising that aspect of it. So they follow the chain, and it just goes into the ground. Like, just straight into the ground. And so one of the characters does the circle thing, but surprise... No witches show up. I know. That sucks. But the park where they're doing the photo shoot, by the way, is called Wilderness Park. Well, if that is not the most creative thing I have ever heard. So the main character, Deb, took the picture so she could put together a portfolio for an advanced photography class. Portfolio here means cutting up semi-okay pictures and cutting stuff out of magazines and using a glue stick on it. Ed Gaines would be ashamed by this shit. At least he made something worthwhile, like a lampshade out of human skin. Anywho, this is all before the title credits, by the way. This movie was like two hours long, so I suffer for you. Know that. Appreciate it. Love me for it. So more characters introduced. Deb's mom and brother. Uh, brother, Mark, is sick after seeing an owl in Wilderness Park and, I don't know, magic? Whatever. Mom relates that he has a fever and threw up last night, and so her, being a nurse, seriously, she is a nurse, states that it's probably West Nile virus or it could be rabies, because Mom is apparently the shittiest nurse ever. There's some useless dialogue, which is a fairly common theme in this film, and then dream sequence. How do I know it's a dream sequence? Because everything is tinted green, and the sound is basically what happens when you take the plug for speakers and kind of only halfway keep it plugged in. Yeah. Also, insanely fun piece of info. Now, I cannot be 100% sure here, but it looked like they were shooting day for night, which is something that I honestly haven't seen them do in a movie since watching a bunch of old-school MST3K films. Like, they stopped doing day for night back in the 60s and 70s. If I thought they did it on purpose as a nod to their horror predecessors, I'd actually applaud it, but I don't think they did, which is why I'm mocking it. Okay, so the trio of girls has to head back into the woods to find a cell phone, right? And in the process, we're treated to one of the worst violations of my ears I've ever had in a movie. Oddly enough, it's not the cicada noises. That'll make sense in a moment. But instead... When they're driving back to the woods, they have the driver's side window down in the car so they can hang a camera out of it, and the wind whips by, and it's obvious and loud, and I like to believe that at some point the director was like, oh yeah, it's totally an artistic choice, while sipping really shitty whiskey. Holy shit, guys. I'm not even a third of the way through my notes yet, so buckle up. You're in for a long ride here. 
Okay, creepy stuff happens in the woods, and one of the girls goes unconscious. What sort of creepy, spooky noises happen when that when that occurs, you might ask? Cicada noises! Lots and lots of cicada noises! Which are literally this movie's versions of the psycho noise. Anytime something super spooky happens, you hear cicadas. I mean, it's almost effective with as shitty as my summers were as a kid, but if you want to use my childhood to scare me, you're going to have to try harder than that. Another dream sequence complete with green tint and child voices, because kids are universally creepy, right? Saying, wake the witch, I think. I don't know. They could have also easily be saying, bake the bitch, which is either a reference to the title of the movie, Wake the Witch, Burning Witches, Bake the Bitch, or the fact that if I was super high, this movie would have been infinitely better. Now, I'm not advocating the use of illegal drugs to enjoy movies, kids, but we would have made this so much better. For real. It, it really would have been better. Anyways, there's a party, so there's drama. Now, we've already met Deb's boyfriend in a scene so stupid that I didn't even mention it until now, but we see him at a party making out with another girl. <gasps> Gasp. And she walks in on them. And then he gives her a line about how he was totally going to try to marry her and stuff, but she has big dreams, of which we know nothing. Apparently, it's her wanting to have a photography degree is a big dream. Uh, whatever. Everybody has a fucking photography degree these days. Like, half the people I went to school with have them. And I'm not knocking it at all, but it's like, that's not a big dream. It's, it's a realistic goal whatever so obviously it won't work out because she has these big dreams and this is all totally explains why he was making out with this other girl wait what yeah no apparently that explains it okay guys girl just no no that doesn't make any sense don't ever try to do it that way so after kissing him and flirting with the idea of getting back together with him what Anyways, she doesn't, and that is probably the most sensible thing she does in the entire movie. She then heads home where her mom almost attacks her with a knife while simultaneously yelling at her that it's not safe out there and why didn't you call me and let me know where you were. Deb rightly points out, well, you could have called me, and mom reacts with a don't turn this around on me while still holding the fucking knife like she's going to stab her. It's okay, though. The shitty dialogue and unnecessary prop help detract from the woman's complete inability to deliver a line in a manner beyond a first-year acting student. I hit. First-year acting students are better than that. I've seen them. More random scenes where we're informed that there is a flu going around. Is this important to the plot? It depends. Is there a plot? Thus far, I am not convinced. She finds out there's a flu because she goes to find her brother at his place but runs into a roommate instead named Brent. And this guy is not a Brent. I know Brents. I am a Brent. We're assholes. This guy is just awkward and lame. Which is also Brent's, but he's not an asshole, so I call bullshit on that. Poor naming. Anyways, they have a super awkward interaction, but they mention in the interaction that it's awkward, so that makes it okay. I mentioned shitty dialogue, right? Okay. Deb and a buddy go off to Wilderness Park, and that's seriously Wilderness Park, that's never gonna get old, to do stuff, I don't know, but while they're there, they see Mark's car. I wonder if he's still sick. Yeah, that's why he's walking around in the woods, because sick people do that. While in the woods, they totally see Mark walking around, and they find more chains. And what goes better with creepy Mark and chains? Skater noises! That's right. They stop to talk for a moment, and there's a dude in a bright fucking red hoodie, like less than 30 feet away from them, and they don't notice him for minutes. They even look at him a few times. I think it was four. Yes, four times they look right at him and don't mention him. And then suddenly it's, oh my god! Well, actually, no. Suddenly, instead of doing a holy fucking shit, there's a scary dude in the woods creepily staring at us, it's, maybe we should go talk to him. 
Then it's suddenly night, because why the fuck not? More cicada noises! Scary cicada noises! Then out of nowhere, there's like a half dozen of these weird zombie-like hobo people. And so what do our heroines do? Back away slowly for a minute. Then run. It's okay, though, because zombie cicada men try to run on all fours, and it goes about as well as you'd expect running on all fours can go. So they get away for, like, two seconds, and then they stop to discuss where to go, so, of course, not main character gets snagged, and they drag her away after kind of maybe trying to eat her. Honestly, I don't know what happened there. Like, I watched that scene, and I, I don't, I seriously, I don't know what happened. So, whatever. Deb runs, and literally runs into Mark, like, bam, runs into him. Oh, hey, Mark. Then he just literally blows in her face, and she goes unconscious. And I'm using literally correctly here. He doesn't have zombie dust in his hand or anything like that. He just looks at her and goes, <sighs> and then she's on the ground, and then she wakes up in the car. She goes home, calls the cops, and then all of a sudden a friend that, uh, that, that tripped over the chains earlier, she had a seizure at some point. That wasn't really necessary to mention because most of this movie's not necessary to mention, but here I am mentioning it because I don't know why I hate myself this much to make myself watch these things, but God, it's fun. So now that friend is at her house, and she's bleeding out of an ear and saying weird shit about makeup, but it's a dream, and I didn't know it was a dream until it was over because they didn't tint it green this time. Clever. So the cop shows up because, you know, she called 911 because, hey, a friend was stolen by zombie people. You call the cops when that happens. The cop accuses her friend of running away from home and that they were totally doing drugs in the woods and making her dad think that she ran away, and I don't know, let me stop and mention that these kids are in college. They are at least 17 to 18, and more likely they're like 20 or 21. And while you can run away from home at that age, I kind of just want to point out that the cop is basically ignoring an actual complaint of an abduction of an adult from another adult because he just doesn't fucking care. Okay, anyways, another dream sequence. You can tell this time because there is green. So after that, she heads over to Mark's because blowing on her also wiped the memory of her being blown on. All right, makes sense. Brent's there, and so I have to stop here again. Because at this point, I am convinced, even after finishing this movie and knowing everything that I do, that Brent is the real monster of the film. Why, you may ask? Because, I say, of the weird conversation he has with her about sandwiches. After inviting her in and knowing that she's freaking the fuck out, he offers her a sandwich. Okay. But then he says, they're good for lunch or breakfast. What? That... Okay, what? Alright, that's just weird, dude. And then he's just holding one in his hand without eating it. But let's look at this so-called sandwich a little bit closer. It's white bread. Okay, that's cool. White bread's tasty. I like white bread. The filling is indeterminable. Like, it's not overstuffed or anything. I can't tell if there's meat, cheese, or what. I can't tell what's there between the three slices of bread. Wait, what? Three slices of bread. Look, I'm not saying a three-sliced piece of bread sandwich is bad or anything. I've done it, but when you do that, it's because there's so much fucking shit in there that you need three pieces of bread to hold it all together. And I can't tell what's between these three slices of bread. It could be children's souls, for all I know. During the conversation that I couldn't focus on because three fucking pieces of bread per sandwich, he sets it down to another three-piece-of-bread sandwich that has, from what I can tell, no filling. It's just three slices of bread stacked on top of each other on a plate. This man is clearly a serial killer, and he's gonna wake the witch using some sort of sandwich mancy. Anyways, we find out he's a part-time employee at the Historical Society where they conveniently keep a gun above the fireplace that's totally never going to be used. Ever. Ever. Pay no attention to those guns above the fireplace, kids. They are just... just doesn't matter. 
He has a super creepy moment where they try to breeze past it by making it known that it's not okay. He seriously says, what's it worth to you? While holding the stuff that she wants. And then when she gives him this look that says, dude, you're a fucking creep. He laughs and says, just kidding. Men, do not do that. Ever. It's just don't. It's not funny. It's just actually fucking creepy. It doesn't matter the intent. It's fucking creepy. She goes to hang out at the woods because I honestly don't know why. But on the way, we see that there are houses with trash cans knocked over. This is important because they train the camera on it for like a minute and a half. Okay. And one house has a biohazard sticker on it. I feel like I should know whose house it is, but honestly, I have not been paying enough attention for that to actually leave an impression. So, I don't know, it's somebody's house and it has a biohazard sticker on it, and that's bad. Creepy dudes at the park creep past her creepily before she sees Mark doing Mark stuff at the park. Mark Park stuff, man. Mark Park. But then, for whatever reason, she goes back to hang out with Brent in a parking garage because he just got off work. From the Historical Society. See, the gun wasn't important. So, he shows her what he found out at work. It's stuff about how there were diseases in the park years ago. But it's okay, because that was just, like, hobos and stuff. But then before that, there were diseases in the park! But wait, before that, there was... Wait for it? A witch! Burn her! Bur oh, wait. Sorry. That's the wrong movie. Anyways, there was a witch in the woods. And, guys, she totally murdered the kids. Probably. Who knows? I don't know. Because before we learn more, literally, the guy who we saw, the red hoodie guy, who grabbed her friend, shows up in the parking garage, and Brenda's all, it's just some kid being a kid! This kid has blood pouring from his mouth and is whiter than, fuck me, and I'm super fucking white, you guys. And he spits all over Brent and then runs away, on all fours. And I guess it's easier to run away in a parking garage on all fours in the woods, because in like two seconds, he's gone, completely disappeared. Alright, whatever. Back to Deb going home, and there are spider webs all over her house. Her camera's broken and scattered. There are, like, pieces of it everywhere. And her mom's bed is covered in blood and her mom is missing. Wait a minute. Webbing everywhere. Broken camera. Missing woman. We just entered Spider-Man's worst nightmare. She finds mom in the basement. Where mom tries to grab her foot to eat her, maybe? I don't know, because mom's all, I'm still hungry. Still hungry? That implies she ate something. What did she eat? Because all the blood on the bed was... Probably hers, at least that's what we're meant to believe. And so, who knows what she... Oh, wait, there's webbing all over the next-door neighbor's house. And he's screaming for help, but he can't get to the door to open it. So, I don't know, I guess maybe Mom sauntered over next door and ate his legs before trapping herself in the basement. I don't know. We'll never find out, sadly. It's a great mystery of this film, right after how it got made in the first place. So, she goes and holds up with Brent, who astutely realizes that there is, in fact, some crazy shit going down. She has a basement dream sequence with Mark in the corner of a weird, creepy basement in a weird, creepy house in the woods. Like, he's in this stone brick basement staring at a corner while saying cryptic shit like, She's coming! The witch is coming! Any resemblance to the Blair Witch Project is likely intentional in an attempt to make you think that this movie might actually be good. Don't let it fool you, it's not. Brent goes to do something. I honestly don't know what. I literally watched this scene where he left like three fucking times and it never stuck what he was going to go do. So Brent goes to do Brent stuff. My opinion, he said, fuck this, I'm not even dating this girl and her brother's some weird, crazy demon spider monster and there's zombie kids spitting shit at me. I'm just leaving town. But we don't know for sure. So Brent, if you're out there, let me know where you went, man. I'm worried. Not about you, but about who you might be killing, you crazy, weird sandwich psychopath. 
Deb wanders around for an entire night and the better part of the next day to get to the park, despite it always being just a few minutes drive away in the past. Whatever. She finally makes it to the woods, where she finds weird tools lying about, and of course, cicada noises! There's a small brick building that was seen before that she heads towards, and oh hey, a corpse! It's that one girl who got nabbed by the zombies earlier? It's her stepsister, but it's okay, because we met her once and she was kind of a bitch, so we don't really care that she's dead. So whatever. What's in the shack? A ladder that goes down. Alright, what's down the ladder? Spider webs! And halfway down, the whole place shakes violently! Well, the camera does, and she pretends like she feels it, so I don't know, close enough. Anyways, more spider webs, and oh, hey, maybe another corpse. I don't know, it's kind of hard to tell. It's dark down here. Looks like this underground bunker is actually more of a place used to store the town's Halloween decorations than anything else. Oh, hey, it's Mark! Sup, bro? What are you doing here? Hanging out with that skeleton chick that's chained to that cage? Why? Exposition time. That's the witch. She didn't murder any kids after all. She tried to warn the town that crazy shit was in the woods and was going to start murdering people. But the townspeople were all like, man, fuck this crazy bitch, and threw her down in the basement. And she's been down there since Lincoln was president in this concrete basement that's new with chains that are new and right. Okay, anyways. So she didn't die for, like, ever, apparently, uh, and they buried her down there because there's a gaping hole in the wall of the basement slash reality where the zombie disease things come from, and it's also where those cicada noises are coming from. And metal is apparently bad to anything from there, which is why there are chains everywhere, and it's, it's a good thing that they don't like metal, because when Mark inevitably gets pulled through the hole by zombie arms, he has a tire iron with him that causes the whole camera to shake again, and there's crazy green lights when he gets pulled into the nothing, and loud noises happen, and apparently the hole feels pain, and I don't know, whatever. It doesn't matter. So, now Deb knows what's up, and she can go tell everyone as soon as she gets out of the, oh, someone's closing the hole that she climbed down through and trapped her down there. So, that happened... And she tosses the witch over and grabs the chains and wraps them around herself to be the new witch of the woods. And no, seriously, that's how it fucking ends. She wraps herself in chains and stares at the hole and fade to black credits. Because... What? And that was Wake the Witch. Okay, so that was the first episode of this delightfully demonic podcast. If you stuck through it, you have my eternal gratitude, especially if you listen to the next one. I'm hoping to do this weekly. Likely the format will stay roughly the same, though I doubt I'll end up with a movie that I actually think is a solid piece of filmmaking every week, but who knows. So this is where I tell you to go do all the social media stuff. I don't have a Facebook page set up for this podcast yet, but I'm sure I will in the future. I do, however, have a Twitter account. Uh, it's Horror4H, that's capital H-O-R-R-O-R, the number 4, and capital H. So follow me on there, and I'll try to remember to update it with fun stuff. I've never used Twitter before, so if you follow me now, you can see my early attempts at figuring out how to social media correctly. It'll be amusing and or cringeworthy, I'm sure. Uh, I am, however, very familiar with email, seeing as I basically remember when that shit was invented. Seriously, if I'd tried to do this when I was like 15 or 16, I'd be posting up a MySpace account. Anyway, if you want to tell me I did a good job, a terrible job, or whatever, you can email me at, and this is all lowercase, horror4h at gmail.com. Again, that's horror, the number four, h at gmail.com if you have a movie you'd love to hear me rip on review etc shoot me an email tell me on twitter let me know if you enjoyed this or you think it's so bad that it's entertaining go tell your friends tell your family tell your worst enemies whoever stop random people in the street and yell at them to, to listen to this 
probably actually don't do that last one, but if you do, video it and put it up on Twitter or something and tag me, because that shit would actually be kind of funny. Also, check out the page on Patreon at patreon.com, horror4h. Are you sensing a theme yet? As of yet, I have no rewards set up, no goals in mind. Basically, if you want to throw money at me, I will gladly catch it and save it up for better recording equipment, maybe some better sound editing software, or maybe I'll blow it all on hookers and cocaine. But if I do it that if I do that last one, I will make sure to post up pictures on Twitter so you can all enjoy it too. I share the wealth. Also, I apologize, I had some issues with the final recording process, and so the transition between reviews was a little bit sloppy. I have made note of my mistakes, and they will not be made in the future. Probably. But hey, anytime something's done for the first time, there's always mistakes, and considering I doubt this literally killed anyone, I'm doing better than the Titanic so far. So join me, hopefully, next week for another installment of the Horribly Horrific Horror of Horribleness podcast, or likely, as I'll refer to it affectionately, the Horror 4H podcast. Until next time, have fun, stay safe, other generic phrases, and thank you so much for listening.